Alrighty. So I, before I start, I want to share with you a fun fact. According to the University of Mental Health Research, public speaking is the number one most common fear. Anyway, my name's Griffin, uh, and this is my first time doing this. So you're probably going to hear a lot of ums and ahs, and if I pass out while I'm up here or anything like that, don't worry, I am just terrified. So we're going to try to get through this. We're going to be ending it a little bit earlier than usual because uh, it's Palm Sunday. Uh, and if you were at the first service, you, you know that. And I have a question for, for everybody in here. Who, come here uh, who from here comes, who comes from a church tradition where you didn't really celebrate Palm Sunday very much? A show of hands. Okay, so a few. There's a few here. So what was, um, did you find it kind of strange? Is it like, not necessarily bad, but just kind of out of the ordinary? Like, it's not something that you usually do. I can see a lot of other churches might recognize Palm Sunday and the importance of it, but they don't wave the branches like we do. Um, and that's because um, we have a lot of traditions here. We're an Anglican church, so we actually, of all the Protestant denominations, we're one, we're one of the ones that really puts a high emphasis on traditions. And actually, for, personally, I love that. I find people tend to, uh, you know, fall into a spectrum of one or the other, where either you are pro, very pro-tradition or you might, you know, ah, I don't like all this stuff. Uh, personally, I fall in the, the category of I really love tradition. Um, I have a few examples of some traditions, and like right here I have the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, and I also have my own personal Anglican rosary. I bet some of you didn't even know Anglicans had rosaries. I didn't for the longest time. Um, but these things, you know, the robes, the lectionary, the pews, and the communion rail, they're not actually all explicitly taught in Scripture. Uh, you don't, it's like Palm Sunday. There's no verse in the New Testament where Paul is like, okay, Christians, here's what you're going to do. You're going to, on Palm Sunday, you're going to go in and wave branches as you walk into your church service. You're not going to find a verse that says that anywhere. And, um, I mean, they're based on themes and things that we find in Scripture, but we're nowhere explicitly taught to do those things. And I always find people who tend to be more anti-tradition, they like to kind of wave that flag and be like, oh, I just do what the Bible tells me to do, and that, that's good and important. You absolutely should. But I think that there is a pit on both sides of these where we can overemphasize tradition or we can underemphasize tradition. Because tradition can be a really helpful tool, like very, very helpful. I mean, this rosary has changed my prayer life. And I thought I knew, I, I kind of wrote it off until I actually looked into it. And I was like, man, this is, I have mad ADHD, so this helped me a lot, a lot. And so that kind of started me on this journey of just kind of trying to learn. I got this book of common prayer because of it. And um, what I found out is that there's a lot that scripture has to say about tradition. And so we're going to be in Mark 7 today. Uh, so I'm going to read from Mark 7. It's hard for me to teach from this because I feel like it makes the point so clearly, but we're going to try anyway. Very professional, did not have it open beforehand. All right, here we go. Mark 7, starting with chapter, uh, verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they, came, uh, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? 
but eat with, with defiled hands. And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And I won't read this next section. The next section basically goes into more detail about other traditions that they do. Um, this is kind of like, if you're the anti-traditionist, it's probably like a really, uh, a verse that you like to go to. Like, yeah, if, forget tradition. We don't really need it. It's not that important. Like, you guys are overwriting the word of God by it. And that can be a very um, correct assessment of a lot of people. Um, so, uh, da, 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 da. okay, so you don't want to go that quickly, though. You don't want to go into tradition bad equals bad. It's, it's not good. Let's just get rid of it. Because what is Jesus saying here? More specifically, what is Jesus not saying here? If we look at the verse, well, for one, I think we can all, I hope we can all agree, Jesus is not saying, do not wash your hands before you eat. That is not what Jesus is saying here. But I think what he is not saying here is that tradition is bad and that we needed to get, to get rid of it. And how do we know that? How do we know that Jesus is not anti-tradition? He absolutely did. I can think of two. There's probably more. But I think of two. Teaching in synagogues is not something taught directly in Scripture, and yet he, he spoke in synagogues. And also the Feast of Dedication, part of Hanukkah, if I'm correct. Um, these are two traditions that are not explicitly taught in Scripture, and yet he participated in them. And I think that we can kind of reasonably conclude that means, well, okay, not all traditions are bad. So what is the distinguishing factor? This is a question for everybody here. Um, what, is, what distinguishes between Jesus' practice of tradition and the Pharisees' practice of tradition in this whole passage? Yeah, exactly. Um, you see a lot of this in the New Testament where um, in the in, in, during the intertestamental period, there kind of arose this idea of a, a Holy Spirit-inspired oral tradition that got passed down from, supposedly from Moses that was just simply not written down in, in the Old Testament. And this is the sort of tradition, this is the tradition of the elders, so to speak. It's a lot more complicated than that. Uh, this is a bit reductionistic, but to put it simply, they placed this tradition on the same level or even at times above Scripture. And I would say in their hearts, they put it above Scripture because they neglected the weightier matters of the law by trying to add extra rules to help them keep the smaller ones. And so that's, yeah, kind of got it in the first try. That was like the answer I was looking for. Um, but what's harder for us to figure out at times is when do we do this? Like, where do we draw the line about the traditions we keep and how can we tell if we are doing this like Jesus does it, or if we are falling more in line with the Pharisees. And I think a lot of that comes down to the heart we have. Um, there'll be times where, and I've seen it, unfortunately, people who I consider brothers and sisters in Christ who are of different churches and different traditions and whatnot, passing a lot of harsh judgment on those who don't keep the same traditions as they do. 
And I actually think that the heart that's behind that is exactly what Jesus is coming out against. Because this seems, I think Tim mentions it a lot, that uh, somebody will say one thing to Jesus and Jesus cuts right past it, right to the core. And it can seem like out of nowhere. And so it seems like they're like, hey, why aren't you guys washing your hands? And he's like, you guys are hypocrites. You guys are awful. And it's like, whoa, <laughs> okay, all right then. But I think he, he really saw, he, I mean, he saw what was in their hearts. He saw that they didn't actually love God and sought to worship him and obey his commandments. They saw it as a means to glorify and lift up themselves up above other people. And I think, sadly, as much as I want to be like, yeah, those Pharisees, the truth is I do that. Almost every single day I do it like that. And many, many times it's so subtle that you have to really learn to, uh, you have to learn to pick up a feel for it and be able to be like, okay, when am I doing this? You have to examine your own heart and be discerning. And that's actually really hard, at least for me. I don't know if you guys, but for me, I fall into it so perennially and so constantly. It can be really, really difficult to be like, am I hoisting myself over other people because I pray a rosary or I read the Book of Common Prayer? No, you'd be like, no, of course I don't. But it's like, but do you? Because I do sometimes. And I think that what is the solution that is kind of implicit in this passage about how we can know if our traditions are operating in their healthy space? This is a question for the room. So how, what is the method here that we can use to correct ourselves and our traditions? So anytime it kind of obfuscates the grace of God, it places boundaries between us and salvation and us and grace and being accepted by God and gives us a feeling of, oh, unless I wash my hands before I eat, God will never accept me. Um, and clearly, I mean, washing your hands before you eat is not a bad thing. <laughs> I, I, again, I hope we can all agree on that. But at the same time, it wasn't the washing of hands that was the problem. It was the fact that they, uh, I mean, as Christ said himself, um, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. It actually goes on in verse 9 and says, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you, uh, but you say, if a man tells his father or his mother whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. This one, I remember when I first read this, it kind of confused me. I didn't really grow up. I was baptized here, but I, I didn't grow up here. I, I grew up outside the church, and so for the first time that I read this, it was confusing, but this korban rule, many of you may know, is a particular rule that was a tradition that kind of got started, it probably got started in a really innocuous place where, uh, as many traditions seem to, 
in the Old Testament, you were required to take care of your parents the, and the elderly. You were, meant, you were required by law, by the law of God, under penalty of death, to not abandon your family. And the Pharisees began, um, I don't know necessarily the Pharisees, but a tradition began at some point in the past, before this, before this passage, where it was a Korban rule. And I believe it's in the, the Mishnah, I believe. But it, the rule said, if you have money and you vow to give this money to the temple in service of trying to honor God, then you don't have to actually use that money to take care of your family. You're, you're all free, as long as you're giving it to God. And I, I mean, personally, I can kind of think like, okay, I can think of situations in which not necessarily the family aspect of that, but that, oh, I, I'm really trying to honor God with my money and I don't want anyone to force me to not be able to do that. But obviously by the time that Jesus is speaking about this, it had become twisted and become something so distorted where it was an excuse to break God's law in the name of tradition. And so I think implicit in here is we need to know scripture. We need to know what the Bible does tell us to do and what it doesn't tell us to do. Because the Bible is silent about a lot of things. And there's a saying that I think is really helpful that where the Bible is silent, we ought to be also. And I understand the, the th heart behind that, I think. I think we should be open to discussion where the Bible is open in the sense it doesn't give us exact answers. But at the same time, we need to learn how to do the open hand and closed hand theology. We hold fast to what is good, but we also have an open hand to things that are, uh, there's a term called adiaphora, things indifferent, which basically means these things are up for debate. We can take these things or we can let go of these things. And I think we need to have a strong sense of what, what goes in what hand. And the only way we can do that is if we know our Bibles. Because um, there are plenty of things which I just assumed were in the Bible that when I actually look, I'm like, oh, <laughs> uh, that's not in there anywhere. <laughs> like, oh, why, why, do I, why did I think that? But I think what's more dangerous about this is that if, if we don't examine our traditions, if we don't put them under the microscope and be critical, not in a mean way, not in a way of trying to get rid of them, but only two outcomes can happen when you examine your traditions in light of scripture. Either you gain a deeper appreciation for your traditions and they help lift you up to looking to Christ, or else you realize that they have been taking a spot in your heart or you have been abusing them and they need to be either put away or changed to the other category where they are now helpful. I don't think anything, comes, anything bad necessarily comes from in a heartfelt, God-fearing way, questioning your traditions and just asking, like, why do we do this? Like the, uh, I don't know if it's still up here. Here it is. This rosary. I was, I kind of, uh, you know, I, when I first was exposed to it, I was like, ah, this is just vain repetition or whatever. I don't want to do this. And then I actually researched where it started. Rosary started in about the third or fourth century when monks, the Desert Fathers, as they were called, they would have pebbles in their pockets and they would reach into their pocket and they would feel each pebble and they would use that to count and recite the Psalms and recite pre-written prayers. It was a memory aid. And over time, eventually they became strung together and then you have a rosary. And those took on many different meanings throughout the next thousand years. But I remember when I, when, when I learned that, it clicked in my head and I was like, this is a tool and one I could actually use. And so I, I got one and it's been super helpful for me. And so I don't really recite many prayers, but I will do um, the sort of act prayer system where it's 
adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication on each bead for different sections. And it's changed my prayer life because oftentimes I'll sit there and I'll be praying and I'll be like, oh. And then I'll, suddenly I'm not praying anymore and I have no idea when I stopped. I'm just thinking about something else all of a sudden. This gave me a discipline. But if I never asked that question, if I just kind of went, assuming, went on assuming it was idolatrous or silly, just nonsense, I would never have benefited from it. But what if it turned out it wasn't good? Well then, at least I know now. And so tradition has an important, almost indispensable role in our lives because we all have traditions. We all have things that are passed down to us and we don't need to hate them, but we also don't need to be uncritically adoring of them. We need to be realistic, we need to be thoughtful, and we really ought to be just careful with how we treat these things because they have an immense power over us that often goes unspoken. And um, I always think to myself, I, I really want like, people to understand and appreciate the traditions that we have here at Holy Spirit. Uh, when Brian was saying the Eucharistic blessing, I was reading a church history book, kind of from a Protestant perspective, and the words that we say, the very opening of the prayer, the Lord be with you and also with you, that goes back to the first century in Rome. Like, this is an ancient tradition. That doesn't mean that it's like, oh, therefore it's from the apostles and we have to do it. But what a blessing it is to be able to share in the activities of God's people throughout history to connect ourselves because there are 2,000 years of people who have walked with Jesus before us. And I think it's just the height of arrogance to assume like we can't learn anything from them. And I think that there's just a lot of people who aren't willing and they think that, oh, that's Catholic stuff or that's Eastern Orthodox stuff. But the truth is these people loved Jesus and they didn't worship necessarily like you and I do. They didn't have the same language, they didn't look like us, they didn't even have the same traditions that necessarily that we do today. But yet, if you believe scripture, you are united with them and you have infinitely more in common with them than you do with many other people who've lived today. And so I think the role of tradition really needs to have a sober and balanced view because if you go too hard in overemphasizing it, you become the Pharisees. But if you underemphasize it, you can lose sight of where you've come from and you give up an, a wonderful blessing. I was supposed to also ask a lot of questions, but I realize I'm getting carried away. So let me go to my notes here and figure out what questions I was supposed to be asking you all. Da, 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 da. No, not that one. Oh yeah, isn't it crazy that the, uh, the Pharisees, when they were asking this question, they were judging not only the disciples for not eating with wash hands, they were going against Jesus, saying, what's wrong with you? Like, you don't, like you're, look, your disciples are going crazy. Why aren't you correcting them? They were passing judgment on God, acting like their traditions overruled his word. And like, if that's not a microcosm of the human condition, I don't know what is. Like, I do that every day. My wife was reading through uh, the Old Testament, specifically like Exodus and the story of the Israelites. And at first she was like, man, these Israelites, man, God keeps blessing him and blessing him and blessing them. And then like, like that, they just turn away and rebel against him and complain. And then she said at one moment she was reading it and all of a sudden she was like, oh, <laughs> oh, uh, that's me. <laughs> that's all of us. And so I think as sobering as this is, that tradition is this thing that we ought to treat with reverence, it's also something that we're not bound by. I'm not going to 
look at someone else who doesn't have a, the same view of the, of the Lord's Supper that I do less than, like they're less than me. Like I'm a superior Christian because I have all the bells and whistles and all the fancy necklaces and stuff. I can't do that because as helpful as these things are, if I turn them into an idol, this becomes an anchor that weighs me down. And the only thing that stands between me and that sort of idolatry is the word of God. And that's the same for all of us. I think that too often we just, we aren't critical enough of ourselves and when we are critical, we're too despairing. I don't know if any of you have seen that. Like you meet someone and then you criticize them, a just uh, criticism, and then they kind of spiral into despair. You're like, oh, I'm just so awful. I'm just so terrible. And that's like the opposite of what you want them to do. You kind of want them like, no, 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 I want things to be better. I'm not trying to get you to hate yourself. Yet we flip-flop and we do this. We go too far in both extremes. And I am struggling to find the questions I wrote down here. Yes. Absolutely. You know, I think you're, you're completely onto something there. That's such, such a, oh, Quig. What he said. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a, that's a great question, actually. I wish I thought of it. Um, what are some, I, I guess, I didn't ask because I was like, I, ha I, I struggle to answer this question a lot, my per myself personally, like in my own life. But what are some traditions from uh, throughout church history that got picked up and that have been since then kind of dropped? I'll give you an example. This is a very fascinating one. In about the third century, Origen writes that there was a belief that Jesus died in his 60s. And the reason that, th that was given for this was because Jesus came to redeem all ages of man. And I'm like, when I heard that, I'm like, what? I'm like, that does not track at all. But if you grant that premise, then you suddenly, Jesus has to have died when he was 60. Otherwise, he didn't come for the elderly. And I, <laughs> I don't think that makes any sense at all. But, I mean, just looking at scripture and looking at just history and even other traditions, it's like, no, he was fairly young when he, when he died. But there's a theological danger in there. And just granting that, can you imagine if we thought that today, that if Jesus didn't die as an old man, then suddenly if you're an old man, you're out of luck. That's just not a helpful belief at all. Yes.
and potlucks. Those are pretty great. I agree, and I think that there's a, a necessity at times, if you don't break the tradition, you need to reframe it. You need to get back to what it was about originally. I think that so often, so often tradition becomes a matter of social inertia than it does uh, whatever it meant when it started. Like, I remember, I kind of have this tradition in my family now where uh, Christmas Eve we open one present on Christmas Eve. And I remember I was sitting there like, oh, yeah, it's just what we do. And then I sat and thought about it. And I'm like, why do we do that? And then I realized, oh, I was really, really annoying. And my mom just wanted me to, like, to calm down. So she gave me one present. I'm like, maybe that's not the best sort of thing I should do for my kids, like placate them when I, whenever I have kids. Yeah, I don't know if that works very well. But at the same time, I could reframe that and say, like, look, this is a little bit of a guess. It's a foretaste of what's coming tomorrow. And I think, again, um, Mike actually told me, I believe it was you who told me this story, it was the example of soldiers in the military when they're cleaning their weapon. It becomes such a habit that you clean your weapon, and if you just let that be a habit, they're not going to do a good job at it. But if you explain to them why it's important and you show them why it's important, then they'll do it, and they'll really do it. And I think that we can just become very placated and very like, oh... You know, we just do that because it's what we've always done. But part of asking that question is to bring out the good that's in there and to minimize the harm that it does when it goes completely uh, unchallenged. Because those things drift and they change over time and you need to constantly, in, in the same way that you live a life of daily repentance, you live a life of constant reformation. Um, a saying from the Reformation was semper reformanda, which means ever reforming. Like we are constantly having to check ourselves and be like, what's not become so glued to like, oh, how we've we been going and where we're going. We constantly correct ourselves. We're constantly open to the correction that comes from the Holy Spirit. We do not confuse our tradition and what we are comfortable with, with what God wants for us necessarily. Um, oh, I didn't even see that. I can eat now. Yeah. I don't, uh, yeah, I don't think that that exemplifies the grace of the gospel very well. Um, at the same time, I, I, I remember I was talking to Tim on the phone and he was like, lazy, don't go off too much on like other traditions and stuff. You don't want to offend like the Roman Catholics and things like that. At the same time, I've been spending a lot of time with Roman Catholics and I think they're wonderful people. At the same time, I hear some of their traditions and I'm like, where did you get this from exactly? Why are you doing this? 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the point of the traditions, though, that they, they should be ideally lifting our eyes up, not onto themselves, but onto the greater reality which they represent. They're supposed to be pointing us to Christ. I mean, all of the traditions of the Old Testament about the whole sacrificial system and the sacramental system of the Old Testament was meant to point towards Christ. And so to now our traditions ought to do the same thing, and we need to check and make sure that is what they are doing, that we're not just doing them because... That's what we've always done. Because when you're, uh, James White, who I have, I love James White, but at the same time, I also don't love James White. But he said, and I'm not sure if it's his quote, but he said something that struck out to me. He said, uh, he was in a debate with a Roman Catholic man. And he said, this is your tradition speaking. And he said, James, I have no traditions. And his response was, a man who says he has no traditions is enslaved to them. Because you cannot correct them. You cannot correct the effect they have on you. You cannot make it better, and you cannot, but it will get worse. And if you don't have that, that check and balance of being able to go against Scripture and correct it, you're in a dangerous path. And I think it's easy for you to sit, sit there and be like, oh, yeah, the traditions of the church. Yeah, that's one thing. Yeah, that's cool. But if you're not, if you're part of the laity, you know, like most of us are, that's not going to affect you as much. But then if you take the same principle and you apply it to your personal life, suddenly it becomes much more grim and suddenly it becomes much more sobering. Because how many things do you do? Um, oftentimes it's said that, uh, I mean, it's like psychology kind of says that we pick up what our parents give to us and we carry it until we realize we don't have to anymore. And some people go through their entire lives carrying the trauma, carrying the same sort of cycles of brokenness. And in some sense, that cycle of brokenness is a tradition that needs to be examined Maybe there's good things about it, maybe there's bad things about it, but you won't know unless you ask the question. Not with a heart of get rid of it, but just why? Why? What is good about this and what is not? And to break those cycles, it requires self-reflection, and the only thing that we can go to that we can trust is Scripture, to really set us back. We need to constantly coming, be coming back to Scripture like a river, like a well. And um, the well hasn't run dry for me yet, I don't suspect it ever will. <laughs> but I think that what is something, what is a tradition, what is something, not a proper tradition, but something that's passed down in your life that may be a certain vice or behavior? Yes. Yeah, it can be that. <laughs> Isn't it interesting that so many times our traditions, especially when it comes to our faith, are often meant to make us holier, but if we're not careful, they have a tendency to do the opposite, where we, our, our, our sinful flesh and our selfishness seizes on that and uses the opportunity to elevate ourselves and seek our own glory rather than lifting us up to Christ. Yeah. 
I am, my wife comes from a Baptist church, and when she first came here, uh, Quig, you told me that a number of people who've visited this church have left, and the reason they stay is that we are too Catholic, which I know enough, and I've spent around enough time around Catholics, and I'm like, that's funny. Like, to me, that's funny. Like, the, the similarities are very superficial. And yeah, it's the, it's the robes and stuff, right? Uh, but my wife, Emily, she came from the Baptist church, and so when she first came here, she said she was slightly startled when, during the, the blessing, and we were like, make us a living sacrifice, and everyone's like, praise, all together. And she's like, what just happened? <laughs> and, and I realized, I was like, oh, yeah, that's like not something that a lot of people do, is it? <laughs> like, and I, I've come to appreciate the blessing of the Eucharist more because I've understood that the sort of flow of history and the thoughts that comes behind it, that it was like this well that was completely untapped. And like, I know it's like, okay, a lot of times our, our walk with Christ comes down to just us and him. But the truth is, no man is an island. You know, we're not meant to exist alone. We exist as a community. That is how we are built. And part of being that community is having that history. And so while I'm not saying if you're not in a church or you're not in a church membership, you don't belong to Christ, but you are denying yourself the full, a fullness of the experience of walking with Christ if you don't bind yourself to a church, as ever imperfect as a church may be. Because if there was ever a perfect, uh, perfect church, it's not perfect the moment I join it, <laughs> right? Like if there was a perfect church, I'm not joining it because it's not going to be perfect anymore. But I think tradition is the same thing because these, are, these were started by people. And they had their own reasons. And if we can figure out what, what they were after and what they valued, we can share in what they did. And I think that's a really beautiful thing. I think that's a really wonderful thing. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think I've been coming here for about ele almost 11 years now. I started in 2012 and it's 2023. That checks out. So 
when I first started coming, this was like the only church experience I ever had. And so I, I took a lot of it for granted. And for the longest time, I was here for the preaching. And preaching was really good. So I was glad about that. But something changed in this last two years where I began to have a higher view of communion. And this will make some people I know here like, eh, whatever, because they have a lower view of communion, and that's fine. But I know in my own personal experience, as I read about it, I've actually come to the point now where, not that it's a competition, but like communion has become such a central part of the gathering together. Uh, when Martin Luther, a very formative moment in his life, was when he was first a priest and it was his first mass. And they believed in transubstantiation, which was that the bread literally becomes physically the body and the, um, the wine becomes the blood. And there was a moment when he had to say the words and he lifted it up and nothing came out. And everyone was like, what's going on? This was a big faux pas. But he said later on in his life, he, he stuttered and then he finished the service and left. He said later in his life, there was a moment when he was holding the bread and all he thought was, how unworthy am I to hold Christ in my hand? And I was like, dude, that is such a foreign concept to most of us. <laughs> That's not how we think of it. But like, what I began to learn, um, I want to say it was Calvin who said this, Calvin had a pretty high view of the sacrament as well. Uh, but whoever said it, they said that the preaching of the word is meant to lift us, our eyes to Christ. And what the communion is, is Christ coming to us and giving himself to us. That doesn't mean I'm making any statement about what the bread is or isn't. I'm like, a, I think that's missing the point. But that when, when Brian or whoever breaks the bread and Jesus said, this is my body given for you, what he is saying is this is the gospel. This is, I, my body is broken, my blood is shed, and it is for you to take for yourself. And that doesn't mean, oh, if I drink the wine and chew the wafer, then I'm all good. My ticket's punched and I'm good. But if you receive that by faith and you see what that is, like that has revitalized my appreciation for all, almost all the traditions in the Anglican um, tradition, like all of it. Because suddenly now, I love the preaching. Dave killed it today. It was a great, if you, if you guys weren't at the uh, first service, you guys are in for a treat. This is a great sermon. Um, and yet, it was ultimately that like lifted me up and prepared me to when the moment I, I take of the wine by faith and I, ch and I eat the bread, I am sharing in something that every believer has experienced and shared in, whether they've actually done that act or not, since the beginning of the church. It's called the communion of the saints, that in a lot of ways, all the saints who've come before us, all the people we've lost who were in Christ, when we take of that, we are sharing in that bounty, and we are united with them in that moment. And I think that is incredible. And it's like, I won't, I won't require someone to think of it the same way that I do, right? But I'm saying, why wouldn't you? Like, this is so incredible, such a wonderful blessing. Why would you not want this? At the same time, I need to guard my heart and be like, oh, you're a low sacramentologist? No, we can't be friends. Because I was there once. Yes.
Oh yeah, I think I think it's it's also an incredible thing to notice that almost every religion in the world has ritual and tradition, and I think that that is because it is innately built into us to have these repetitions and these things that lift our minds to something outside of ourselves. Now, obviously, I don't agree with every world religion, but I think that that the fact that that's the case speaks to something deep inside of us. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. I think that what you were getting at there with, we kind of highlight this buddy Jesus sort of attitude. And it's funny because I don't want to overcorrect and say Jesus is not this friend who's ever present. But what makes Christ and his gentleness and his lowliness so incredible is that he is that God. He is that God who is so far beyond us and who we are unworthy of, and yet he, the infinite, became an infant. He came down to us. He didn't need to. There was nothing about us that he was like, oh, you guys are just so great, I'm going to come down anyway. He didn't come down because we were good. He came down because he was good. And so I also want to say one last thing because we're about out of time. We're ending a little early for Palm Sunday. But I will say that I think there's something incredible that when you understand how the religious ritual systems work a a lot of times in the pagan world, people would bring up their sacrifices to an altar to try to please their God, to appease their wrath. And one of the ways that we have an altar is because this is a complete reversal. The offering that was made for us was God himself. And because he was God himself, there's no need for any more sacrifices. And so... What, what do we give up when we come before this altar? Nothing other than our praise. God, instead of us trying to beg, God, please don't hurt me. Here's, a, here's an animal. Kill that instead. Instead, God, what God is doing is reversing that completely by saying, I have given myself up for you. And I love you. And nothing will ever t- change that. And so and what, what do we do in res- response? We simply say, thank you. And we try to live our lives more. And it's like, part of that tradition is help to elevate that. So we're about out of time now, about two minutes over. It's, uh, 
But I don't know how to close, so I think I'll just close out in prayer. So I'll pray real quick. Almighty God, we thank you that we have this time together, that we can come and reflect on your word. I pray that you'll be with all of us as we go throughout our day. So guide our hearts and so guide our minds that we live for you and we please you and we honor you, not just with the things we do or say, but also the things we think. Guide us by your spirit to live a life that pleases you, where we are satisfied and pleased in you and with you. And we pray for all, we pray for all of this by the precious blood of your son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. All right, thanks, guys.